This is Macro Horizons, episode 29, and so it begins, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of July 29th. And a reminder, you can't have a second rate cut until you've had a first. views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. So Ian, I may have misheard you earlier, but did you say GDP didn't matter? That's a fair point, Ben. The fact of the matter was GDP for the second quarter came in notably higher than expected. Within the details of the release, we actually saw that consumption was very strong. The only thing that really offset the strong spending figures was a inventory drag and a drag from net exports. Net exports make sense given what we are seeing on the global trade front trade war, etc. No big surprise there. And inventories are typically a zero-sum game. And the notion that the economy has a bit of a drag from that sector also follows intuitively. What was really surprising, however, was the weaker-than-expected core inflation figures during the second quarter. This is important for a few reasons. One, when we had that stronger-than-expected core CPI print, the consensus then became that that strength would flow through to core PCE. Now, we don't get the core PCE print until Tuesday, and that's for the month of June, which is already included in Friday's data. Long explanation even longer, this fits very well into the Fed's narrative that they're easing because of the lack of inflation, not to encourage economic growth. Again, we've been on about this notion that for the Fed to truly recast the way investors believe monetary policy should interact with inflation, they will need to maintain an easy monetary policy stance for much, much longer than we've seen in the past, even in the face of increases in realized inflation. So if we haven't got to the point where realized inflation is trending higher, then we're still in the early stages of how the new norm for monetary policy is going to play out. Generally speaking, it's difficult to be anything but constructive ahead of a Fed rate cut. However, at this moment, we're debating whether or not All of the upside has been priced in for the first two or three rate cuts, presumably, of this cycle. So in that context, the recent auction performance, particularly in the coupon space, has been pretty informative. We've now seen five consecutive tailed coupon auctions. For context, that's the longest streak of tailed coupon auctions that we have seen since June of 2014. Little surprise that in the wake of that supply, T 
10-year yields managed to increase roughly 20 basis points. That leaves us short-term, less willing to chase a rally, but longer term, we still think there's plenty of fundamental demand for treasuries. This is more an issue of supply and demand defining the lower end of the trading range rather than bond vigilantes saying that this has simply gone too far and the next stop for 10-year yields is 75 basis points higher. If anything, this is a 10 to 15 basis point signal, not a 25 to 50 basis point one. Congress also delivered what is ostensibly resolution on the debt ceiling issue. The price action that has played out in the very front end of the market illustrates that investors are far more comfortable holding bills that mature between now and the end of the year. We had a reasonable rally centered around the three-month bill. Again, very consistent with suspending the debt limit for an additional two years. It also gets us past the 2020 election, making treasury borrowing far less political in the medium term. That being said, the deal hasn't been completed just yet, although we expect that by the time Congress breaks for recess on August 5th that the deal will be officially done. So the big news this past week was that they've reached a deal on the debt limit. Oh, so they've raised the debt limit? So this actually is a gripe of mine where I get frustrated reading some commentary on this topic. After the details of the deal were announced, there were a lot of headlines suggesting that they raised the debt limit until July 2021. That's wrong. You can't raise a dollar amount by an amount of time. That doesn't make any sense. Instead, what they've actually done is just suspend the debt limit to reinstate in July 2021. So they didn't raise anything. They just said, Treasury, go about borrowing what you see as necessary to fund the government. It'll restart in 2021. It wasn't raised. It was suspended. So there's no chance of a government shutdown this time? And that's another gripe of mine. While we're in a John Splainable moment, these are two different things. We can still absolutely see the government shut down later this year, similar to how we saw it shut down in December and January when the debt limit wasn't a real risk. So on net, one, they didn't raise it. They suspended it. You can't raise dollar amounts by amounts of time. Those are different units. And two, the possibility of a shutdown is still very much alive. And given the current state of the political discourse in the U.S., it should be taken rather seriously. So after that strong start, maybe we give John some time to cool off. Ian, what was your takeaway from the ECB? I mean, obviously, we'll get to the Fed this week, but there was some pretty interesting price action around not only the statement, but then followed by Draghi's press conference. So obviously, the ECB didn't cut rates, but they did lay the groundwork to ease later this year. That was very much in line with expectations. One of my biggest takeaways from the price action was that the market sold off. It sold off arguably on a bit of under delivery because there was a risk that the ECB actually did cut rates further into negative territory. More importantly, I would argue this offers a glimpse at what I expect will be the market's response to the Fed next week. Unless Powell is somehow able to, once again, outdove very dovish expectations, I think that there's a chance that the market actually backs up. We see higher rates despite the fact that the Fed has actually cut. The caveat that I'll add here is that it will be a classic tale of two markets. The front end will remain 
anchored to monetary policy expectations. And the weakness that I worry about is really in the 10 and 30 year sector. Yeah. And in conversations we've had this past week, the question of how Powell is able to out dove the doves as if we haven't beaten that phrase to death enough. So pull a dove out of his hat? Another great one. But I think the easiest way for him to do this is going to be maybe try and do the inverse of what we saw come out of Frankfurt. And what I mean by that is while Draghi's press conference was a bit more hawkish than maybe what the market expected, I think if Powell comes out in his press conference and offers really explicit forward guidance that this 25 basis point cut is just the first of more to come, whether that be 75, 100, or 125 is still an open question, but I do think it really will come down to how well he's able to convince the market that more cuts are coming. And Ben, I think you touched on something extremely important there. The market discourses really seem to focus on the chance of a stabilization cut to the extent of 50 or 75 basis points. As far as I can tell, the reason why everyone's kind of grappling with those two numbers has to do with the experience we had almost 20, 25 years ago in the late 90s with the stabilization cuts then. Fair enough as a baseline, but I would argue, and William's most recent speech explicitly made this point, when you're at the zero lower bound, you have to be a little bit more aggressive than you otherwise would be. So maybe as a stabilization baseline, we should be talking about 100 basis points rather than just 50 or 75 and so it's really a discussion of, do they cut 100, 125, call it, or are we back at the zero lower bound? And just to specify, we're talking in aggregate here, not 100 basis point cut all at once. Yeah, that would be quite the surprise. So when I look at the history of the way that the Fed funds futures market tends to trade, one of the things that becomes very evident, at least to me, is that the market does a great job of pricing to the foreseeable future, which I'll characterize as six months. And so what we tend to see, and this was very true in 2017 and 2018, the Fed had defined gradual tightening as 25 basis points a quarter. And so the market would price in two rate hikes and a pause on a rolling basis. And every time we got one more hike, we'd price in two more. I actually expect that that's exactly what is going to play out when the Fed starts easing. What we'll see is two additional rate hikes fully priced in going into the meeting. One is realized, and then there'll be two more priced in with a stub risk of that third. Now, what this means in practical terms is once the Fed decides that they've eased as much as they're going to, except perhaps that one last 25 basis point move, they will then need to change the market narrative to something less dovish, less accommodative, just to signal that we'll be moving to a period where we are on hold. And again, I think John makes a very good point. This is not necessarily the operative one, but using the assumption that we're going to go 75 basis points, I could envision a situation where we have 25 basis points in July, 25 basis points in September, but that period between the September and the October meeting, the Fed really needs to change the market's perception of how far they'll go. This leads me to continue to focus on the seasonals, which tend to show 10-year yields hitting the low in the middle of September. That's very consistent with what we would expect to be the run-up into the September meeting, and also fits well with our broader expectations for there to be a moment of optimism into the end of the year 
where reflation, stimulus on the growth side, and even perhaps a social amount of term premium once again returns into the market. So say we're in late December of this year, where in yield level terms do you think that leaves tens? At the moment, I still think that there's a reasonable shot that we end 2019 with 10-year yields in a 225 to 250 range. That said, I've been getting a fair amount of pushback from clients on this notion, the idea being that once the Fed starts cutting, the market will reprice much lower. We'll see a one-handle on the 10-year yield almost in perpetuity once the Fed starts to ease. I actually disagree. And while I do think that 2020 will ultimately be a very bullish period for the treasury market, we will be trading well below 2% tens at that point. This initial impulse will be read at least for a moment in time as the Fed being aggressive enough to avoid an actual recession in the US. Again, I'm a bit cynical by nature. I don't think that ultimately happens. However, if we look at the shape of the curve and we look at, frankly, how much easing has already been priced into the market, it's reasonable to expect the pendulum of economic sentiment will swing back toward optimism as the summer winds down and 2020 estimates become topical. I think that's right. And one of the big things that I've been watching very closely is even as the markets come around to the idea of cuts, priced in multiple cuts on a rolling basis, as you mentioned, break-evens have stayed stubbornly low. So inflation compensation still hasn't moved up to 2%. You get five-year around 160 now, 10-year around 180. Ideally, the Fed actually wants to see that a little bit north of 2%. So If these cuts are successful at prolonging the cycle and providing a bit of a reflationary boost, just to put some figures behind it, you know, 40 basis points of inflation compensation really isn't that kind of crazy. And you could see a moment where you get lower real yields, but even more inflation compensation pushing tens into the low twos at least temporarily before the wheels come off. If the Fed is actually able to extend the expansion, we continue to see a very low unemployment rate as that excess capacity in the labor market is absorbed. That, coupled with the reasonable gains that we've had in terms of average hourly earnings, really does bring up the specter of demand-side inflation that has been remarkably elusive so far in the cycle. I've always been of the mind that the Phillips curve, while very flat, isn't completely non-existent. And as long as the expansion continues to the point where it starts to become more relevant, that leads to inflation, I think that's really what the Fed is trying to orchestrate. But in terms of what it means for Treasury yields, I think that development in particular would leave the market in a really interesting spot because by definition, that would be the Fed's goal. We get inflation back into the system, wages continue to grow strong, unemployment remains low. Well, then why would they ease anymore? In fact, maybe they consider a hike or at a minimum, a period of elongated policy stability. And to me, that's naturally going to serve on just how far long end rates can sell off, even if, in fact, this expansion continues even deeper into record territory. Yeah, I mean, if you get lower for longer, like say you get 50 basis points of cuts to throw out a number on the smaller side, that still puts overnight rates south of 2%. And then if you have a period of policy stability in there, 30s north of 250 look great, given this is supposed to be the nice part of the cycle. Eventually, we will go into a recession, even if it's not next year, at which point we're back at zero looking at QE. 
if 30s are stabilizing 100 basis points over the upper bound of what Fed funds might be expected to prevail at, the back end still seems like a buy for me. One of the questions that I have received a couple times in recent weeks is whether or not the Fed would be interested in lowering interest on excess reserves along with the first rate cut as a way of providing a little bit more of a dovish spin to this upcoming move. Yeah, Ian, that's definitely been a conversation that we've had a lot recently. And here I would offer, while that technical adjustment we saw last time was probably warranted, given how close Fed funds was to the top of the range, by historical context, that was five basis points. We haven't seen EFFR drift that close. And in fact, the closest it's gotten is eight basis points. So from that lens, another IOER tweak really doesn't seem necessary. And furthermore, the fact that Paula did such a good job at splitting the IOER adjustment versus monetary policy in the last press conference would make it very difficult for him to go from saying, this change to interest on excess reserves is simply a money market plumbing issue, no real monetary policy impact, to then pivoting and saying, we're cutting IOER to provide more monetary policy accommodation. I think that makes sense. And it's really just not a conversation worth having, given how complex this meeting already is going to be. Another topic in a similar vein that we've tossed around is the idea of ending balance sheet roll-off early. Current guidance is for roll-off to continue through September. And, you know, I'm of the mind where I certainly think that they should stay with the guidance they've given. A small reduction in excess reserves really doesn't matter from a macroeconomic lens. But in terms of conversations you don't want to have, why are you trying to explain cutting rates and allowing the balance sheet to roll off simultaneously? So I actually think that they will announce an earlier termination to the balance sheet normalization, at which point it's just kind of steady as she goes going forward. I'd probably put odds at around 75% that they stop next week, but I certainly sympathize with the idea that they'll follow through on their pre-commitment. Circling back to the ECB, how concerned do you think Powell really is about the effective lower bound of monetary policy in Europe? I would say that both he and the committee are very worried, as they should be. The ECB has much less policy space than they used to, and they're trying to think very hard about how they can provide additional monetary accommodation to try to avoid a manufacturing recession in Germany, Europe more broadly. And the reality is the ECB is kind of up against a wall. They've already gone negative. They had a very large and aggressive asset purchase program. Sure, they can kind of push things a little bit further. The concern and the euphemism is, you know, pushing on a string. The effectiveness starts to wane. And if a major risk to the U.S. outlook is diminished global growth, particularly in Europe, the ECB can't help the Europe side. That starts to weigh on Fed policy. Ian, one of your longer running themes is that 10 and 30 year yields are reflective of global growth expectations. Well, if you have the second biggest economic block in the world starting to look exposed from a monetary policy lens, that introduces some downside risk to global growth and hence continues to weigh on U.S. rates. Well, there's also the parallels with Japan that I think are pretty meaningful at this point in the cycle. As you point out, the pushing on a string narrative starts to make a lot of sense when the ECB has effectively run out of bonds to buy. What else can they do? Are they going to go further out the credit spectrum? Are they going to do some version of the BOJ's ETF purchases? That has serious ramifications for not only European assets, but also assets in the U.S. And 
just at a certain point, this is extraordinary. Ten-year Greek debt yields below ten-year treasuries. The effectiveness of QE is to reduce borrowing costs. You can't really push borrowing costs down too, too much from there. That tool is much more impactful when rates are higher. And there's kind of the question of, okay, so say you go from high ones to low ones in 10-year Greek debt. Is that going to turn around Southern Europe? It's a bit of a hard argument to make. To be fair, though, a great deal of that simply has to be a function of the ECB, the potential to buy more bonds, especially in the context of 10-year yields. After all, the ECB is not going to be in buying treasuries. Not yet. In the week ahead, we'll be very closely following the final revisions to the University of Michigan sentiment data. Isn't there something going on before that? Oh, right. The Fed. So much has been said about the Fed, whether they go 25, whether they go 50, whether it's the beginning of a broader campaign, how this all plays out. It feels as though we have very little to offer in terms of insight at this stage. Nonetheless, we're on board with the 25 basis point rate cut. We expect that there will be a series of two or three at a quarter point each, although we'll have a lot more clarity once we hear from Powell on Wednesday afternoon. And by this, we simply mean that Powell is going to need to communicate to the market whether it's one and done, which obviously we don't think it's one and done, but the chair will also need to communicate to the market what the new cadence of fine-tuning will look like. Certainly not an enviable task, but at least it promises to be a very interesting Wednesday afternoon press conference. We continue to favor the 2's 10 steepening and anticipate that once the cutting cycle really gets underway, that that will be one of the easier trades to get behind. Presently, it doesn't carry very well, and there has been a stubborn range of, call it, 20 to 30 basis points in 2's 10's that seems difficult to break. Engaging the curve's reaction to incoming data, the GDP print was pretty informative because once again, we saw strong growth, which put upward pressure on front-end rates, not dramatically, but the takeaway was with the current growth profile, it will be difficult for the Fed to do more easing than is currently priced in the market, but on the flip side, core inflation underperformed yet again. So said differently, the market is communicating that if the Fed doesn't do more because of growth, it will be a policy error. So it was quite interesting to see 10-year yields after the strong GDP print were actually lower on the day. In terms of the technical landscape, some of the really oversold levels that we saw in the beginning of July have begun to fade. And as that's happened, we've seen stochastics pull back from oversold. They're still mid-range, and there has been a bit of a curl. There's no clear or concise directionality to be taken out of the momentum profile at this moment. With that backdrop, we are going into the Fed meeting with relatively low outright yield levels, certainly for this cycle. That in and of itself shouldn't prevent another move lower. If Powell manages to once again outdove dovish expectations, but it does raise the bar for a much more significant rally, particularly in 10s and 30s. And as we watch that 2% level in 10s, it strikes us that the pricing that's currently in the market, i.e. 25 basis points fully priced in, with some lingering probability that the Fed actually goes 50, if they deliver 25, 
don't outdove dovish expectations, we could easily see the 10-year sector sell off, but that's more likely a trade for the beginning of August rather than the Fed day, which also corresponds with month-end and month-end duration demand. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who's managed to make it this far. With August now upon us, imagine, if you will, a market with falling liquidity, choppy price action, and limited conviction. You are now entering the two-weeker zone. Tune in and drop out. Or better yet, drop out and tune in to Macro Horizons. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.